0: The idea that there's an easy uh, and untroubled frontier between um, what a nation is and what an empire is—it's I mean, just not really true. I mean, Britain is something that historically was a kind of an imperial entity, even within its own islands, um, and now—and it's become more of a nation—and now that nationality is again in question. <laughs>
1: Politics in America, Britain, and other Western nations, reads the blurb for the Edmund Burke Foundation's National Conservatism series of conferences, have taken a sharp turn toward nationalism, a commitment to a world of independent nations. In the US and the UK, this inflection point crystallized in 2016 with the result of the Brexit referendum and the election of Donald Trump. In continental Europe, the torch has been picked up by an arc of national populist parties from Viktor Orban's Fidesz to Spain's Vox, Italy's Fratelli d'Italia, and Poland's Law and Justice Party. Now, the latest such natcon conference was held last week this side of the pond, in Brussels, bringing together a colorful assortment of right-wing politicians, scholars, and journalists at a ritzy venue a short walk away from the seat of EU institutions. Naturally, the gathering had been planned well before Russian troops invaded Ukraine, and the conference had to adjust to a fast-moving news cycle accordingly. The ongoing Russo-Ukrainian war has also predictably shaken up the French presidential race. This week, we sit down with Sebastian Millebeck, who covered the NatCon summit extensively for The Critic magazine, to unpack the conference's main themes and to assess the state of play in France a mere ten days away from the first round of voting. As always, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or the platform of your choice. And if you're feeling generous, please consider donating as little or as much you can through our Patreon page linked in the show notes. Enjoy the episode.
2: So, um, first of all, thank you so much, Sebastian Milbank, for coming on the show. Uh, Sebastian Milbank is a fantastic writer. He is writing for The Critic and uh, on this special topic he has been writing a lot of articles on the National Conservative Conference which I highly recommend you go and give a read to. Um, so thank you so much Sebastian for for joining us.
0: Yeah, thank you very much for having me.
2: And um, Jorge why don't you get us started because um, unlike unlike the both of us, Sebastian and I were here for press, but you were here as um, as a host. You were speaking. Um, you were speaking at a NatCon conference. Can you kind of give us a, an idea of you know what the main themes of a NatCon uh, movement is? You know what drives them and what unites them.
1: Yeah. Um, well. Um, let me just begin by saying, first of all, this was, um, if my understanding is correct, the third European conference of NatCon and NatCon, by the, by the way, I'll just begin by defining what it is. NatCon is a forum, um, which is, uh, which was spawned by, uh, the Edmund Burke foundation. The Edmund Burke foundation is a, uh, public affairs institute, a kind of think tank, uh, based out of Jerusalem, um, and which uh, started running these NatCon conferences a while back. I think the, the, the very first one was in 2016, which was the year obviously of Brexit and the election of Donald Trump. And in in their own words, what the Edmund Burke Foundation saw happening in 2016 was, was a sharp turn toward nationalism across Western politics. Right. They saw, you know, here here there was the um, the, the British people voting for independence from the EU and, and, and the American people um, or, or, a, or a large uh, plurality of the American electorate voting for, for Donald Trump, and so uh, the Edmund Burke Foundation started putting together these conferences. The first of which was actually in London, uh, where, with uh, the late Roger Scruton, uh, Daniel Hannan, a, and a range of other very prominent uh, Tory politicians. Uh, so this is just kind of to um, to give you a, a bit of a background on what they've what they've been um, up to, and 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 also, I mean. Th- the natcon uh the people associated with NATcon sometimes can come off as fringe but in in reality there's there's been a, a strong sort of record of uh inviting establishment figures people from established uh political parties like the the conservative party in the u k and the republican party in the u s so they're not as fringe as um, as its critics might uh, might uh, see it but Um, But so essentially, this was the third European conference. So London was the first one. The second one was Rome, uh, which is also very kind of um, significant because that's when they had Prime Minister Viktor Orban uh, address uh, the the conference. And the third one was uh, in Brussels. I think the the main reason for it was main reason it was in Brussels was because it was um, uh, kind of synchronized with the um, with the meeting of the European with the EU Council uh, that was taking place on, on the same week.
2: And NATO, I believe, as well.
1: And NATO, and NATO as well. And um, so, yeah, I mean, and to your question uh, of you know what what do the National Conservatives stand for? Well, I think this this one will, will also be an interesting one to get Sebastian's thoughts in. I'll just give I'll just broach upon kind of two um, two um, key themes. So I think the ideal, the the kind of the, the political ideology of the NatCon movement is perhaps best summarized in the virtue of nationalism, which is Jordan Hasani's uh 2018 book uh which was awarded the the uh intercollegiate studies institute book of the year award which is kind of the the conservative book prize in in america um and the the virtue of nationalism i I remember reading it when it it first came out uh really grabbed a copy as soon as it hit the shelves and and um in it uh yoram hazemi essentially divides up uh political theory between kind of two main schools of thought right On one side, there are the nationalists, and on the other side, there are the imperialists. And essentially, uh, nationalism is the rejection of empires, the rejection of imperialism. It's the idea that the proper scale at which to organize a polity, a political community, is the nation-state. Anything larger than the nation-state is an empire. And empires are inherently unstable. Uh, They're inherently undemocratic. They're inherently um, oppressive, whereas nations are the only, um, uh, again, the only kind of um, uh, scale at which liberty can flourish, liberty and prosperity can flourish. This is the, this is kind of the the, the bedrock uh, philosophy behind national conservatism. But uh, and again, we can we can sort of compare that with uh, what it is that the uh, that the people associated with national conservatism are. Proposing in terms of public policy, but I think those are some of the base, ba- basic kind of philosophical commitments that you can that you can see in, in national conservatism.
0: Yeah, no, that's. The, I mean, that's. The, I mean, that's terribly interesting because, um, I mean, I, I'll admit I'm not uh, a particular. I mean, I've always been something of a critic of Hazani's perspective, there precisely. I mean, it's always struck me as, for example, I mean, this idea that if something's too large, it's an empire. Well, I don't know what you know. You know, the Amer- you know, United States of America, which I am sure has only grants as a nation. Um, yeah, you know, it's three hundred million citizens. It's a land area and a population vastly larger than most of the empires of history. Uh, and even in a world of mass communications, it's it's a society that vastly exceeds any scale that could be considered organically democratic. Um, you know, and that's clearly, uh, and and I think. The idea that there's an easy uh, and untroubled frontier between um, what a nation is and what an empire is, I mean, it's just not really true. I mean, Britain is something that historically was a kind of an imperial entity, even within its own islands, um, and now and it's become more of a nation. And now that nationality is again in question. Precisely in the move towards nation, Britain's become more unstable. I mean, I, if you look, for example, at the relationship between Scotland and England, Um, it was easier to handle as a decentralized uh, imperial venture and fusing it together into a single nation. And, and, you know, the the historians have written about this. If you particularly look at um, the 20th century experience of the invention of British nationhood, it's been an experiment that has ultimately led to instability. I mean, the same is true in Spain, where moving away from a more idea of Spain as an imperial entity towards a national one has created tensions of seeing things like the the Catalan independence movement. I explode so that's kind of my ideological concern and in terms of the conference itself I was very struck that I would say things like this to people and I get quite a lot of agreement so I was very struck for example that uh, a lot of people said they quite liked the idea of empire and I was also one of the paradoxes I think of National Conservation Conference is that here are here is a movement whose founder, without question, says that he's suspicious of empire and transnational entities, but it's a series of nationalists organizing internationally, you know, for you know, shared ideological and security concerns. And, and, and I don't see how you escape, you know, whether you like to use the word empire or not, I don't see how you escape at least imperial concepts when you organize at that level. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh-huh. It's interesting because next week we'll be releasing an episode on the revolutions of 1848 and there was an interesting conversation we had Professor Clark and Professor um, Jonathan Sperber who wrote two fantastic books and and articles on on those issues but there was an interesting moment in the conversation where we kind of realised that 1848 is remembered to some extent as a European moment because all these revolutions happen at the same time. But What is quite striking is in the end those who seem to be more efficiently organised at the European level we actually the conservative and the reactionaries who kind of coordinated to to crush re, the the revolutions across Europe um, together. So it's interesting to see that nationalism um, can have as kind of international well, not nationalism back then, obviously. Um, the right wing that back then was, was fiercely anti-nationalistic. Um, yeah, I was
0: going to say yeah. that's what's quite interesting, yeah. because, of course, the, the, the nationalists of the 19th century yeah. were the liberals.
2: Yeah, so. absolutely. Well, left wingers. So yeah, it's an interesting conversation to have with this kind of historical frame back um, back here. But uh, you, you were talking about, about the UK and actually something that struck me and I think probably says a lot about the um, kind of not just a NACON conference, but kind of larger nationalist movement in Europe. It's that we hardly mentioned Brexit. Um, Mm. And given the fact one one of the first conferences was in in London, um, given the fact uh, we talked about the UK and Brexit incessantly for the past four years, it was actually quite striking that nobody really talked about Brexit. I think we had historian, Andrew Roberts, who talked a little bit about um about Brexit because he was talking about
0: Churchill and Zelensky, but I, I don't I have, to admit, I have the opposite impression. Um, nearly every British guest mentioned Brexit. Yeah, no I one think else. more striking that the Europeans didn't. Yeah, exactly. The British,
2: exactly. And I think it, it, it's quite striking because it seems to me like the, the larger nationalist movement has kind of come to a uncomfortable truce with the EU, um, which is. Brexit hasn't been a incredible success. It hasn't been the disastrous failure as well that's unpredicted, but it hasn't been an incredible success for sure. It's been four years of incredible tension within the, on the British political system, and so even like you know Marine Le Pen in France or Matteo Salvini in Italy. Um, no longer are they saying, you know, we need to leave the Eurozone, we need to leave the EU. Nowadays, they barely talk about the EU at all. Uh, Salvini is even more complicated because he, he, he joined a kind of right, large center right, centre-left, centre right-wing, far-right, I don't know, huge coalition in Italy with Mario Draghi, so he's, he's in a bit of a tough position. But it seems to me like there's very few major political parties on the right to far-right nowadays, who are saying we need to leave the EU? Because I think people have accepted that. First of all, economically, it's it, it doesn't look great, but also kind of electorally, people people don't want that. Especially the kind of auto electorate, which tends to be um, voting disproportionately um, in in major elections. Um, again, look in France. You know, Zemmour isn't saying anything about the EU. He 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 says you know if we he says my model is Viktor Orbán. I want to stay within the EU, and when the EU asks me to do things I don't want to, I just I just tell him to fuck off, you know. Um, and and I, I think it was quite yeah. Nobody talked about Brexit. It wasn't used as a model by anyone except except the Brits. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, you know, and and, and I think um, that this this really is connected, kind of to um, you know the fact that uh, you know I mean for one thing, um, I mean some some of these. Continental nationalists, some of these European mm. nationalists are uh genuinely uh disappointed, or, or rather they they genuinely regret uh that the Brits ended up leaving. Um mm. if, for instance, I, I'm thinking of the Polish Law and Justice Party, which was allied with the British Tories in the European Parliament. They they belong to the same sort of uh a, a parliamentary grouping. Um Whereas others, whereas people, for instance, I mean, the, the 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 departure of the Brits has had a rebalancing effect. I mean, it has obviously empowered the Franco-German uh, axis. Uh, it may have, um, I think, it may have kind of um, weakened the position of, say, the Baltic states or other Eastern and Central European states that uh, relied on Britain to be the kind of the uh, pro atlanticist uh, uh, yeah. Voice within the within the European Union, um, but I think I, I, I mean I totally agree with you. I, I was pretty. I mean Brexit in a way was the culmination of the natcon philosophy. It was a, yeah. a, 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 um, a kind of a, a country uh, taking it upon itself to um, become independent from the, the shackles of the European Union, and yet it is not. See I mean I I'll, I'll be absolutely frank on this one I I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big uh, uh I I wasn't perhaps at the time but I I'm, I'm a big supporter of Brexit now and I and I think of Brexit as, as kind of a, a a big moment in the NatCon uh, crusade so to speak yeah. but I, I I I agree with you that it wasn't it was it was um uh um, ubiquitously absent it was it was um, ubiquitously absent from the from the conference
2: Yeah absolutely and um Sebastian, I wanted to bounce about. I have something which is a bit tangential to so feel free to go ahead. Uh,
0: no, I mean I don't think I was just going to say that. Um, I mean, I, I I do think that this this sense that 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 there's this. I, I noticed at the conference particularly that there was this kind of Anglo-American Atlanticist focus, mm. which talked a lot about Brexit. But I always, what was what struck me about that was. I kept questioning the relevance of it, like it had been done, right. it had happened, but none of the Central Eastern European countries, especially in the current context, yep. were thinking about leaving the Nothing. EU or even talking about it. I mean, even yep. though there were a few a few noises were made critical about the EU, it was mostly about what direction it should take. Um, it was yep. quite a, in a sense; it was a constructive criticism. Uh, there it, it, uh, there's a sense in which I wasn't quite sure what Brexit was contributing um, to the movement. Um, that that because it, there was a sense of which like what what strategic possibilities were being opened up, what economic potentials were happening. Yeah. Um, it, it, it it didn't. It, it was just it it felt like it was symbolically significant for people involved in the movement that people had said it, but I, it was hard to see what work it was doing.
2: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's, I mean, it it'd be it'd be tough for countries like Poland and Hungary to say we need to leave the EU. Um, because obviously, you know, they've, they've been showered with with EU funding over the past thirty years. So it's obviously, you know, not in their best interest. And the UK, was in a different position, of course, because it was a net net contributor, and also because I think we have to, we can't ignore the history behind all of this. I mean, the UK is an island which had an empire outside of Europe for for most of its most of its history, you know, or at least recent history, and and countries like like Hungary and Poland have quite bitterly experienced the cost of isolation in in a a rough geopolitical landscape Um, and i think that's something which was made very apparent with, with with um with ukraine which is a very smooth transition for me to talk about the question of ukraine because this conference was planned months ahead of this but obviously it took a very very different tone with what happened in russia and ukraine because all of a sudden you felt like um a lot, a lot of the speakers who weren't expected to talk about Ukraine felt like they had to talk about Ukraine. And it really showed, I think, a bit of a rift. And this time, we talked a lot about the kind of Anglo, Anglo-American Anglo rift with central continental uh, Europeans. But it was quite, quite striking actually, to see that those division lines happened to be within the, the continentals themselves. You know, it was quite interesting to see the Hungarians... And the polls, for example, taking very different positions. Uh, I, I just saw that Zelensky was singling out Viktor Orban um, earlier this week um, for not being uh, you know, strong enough in his support for, for Ukraine, not, not letting weapons to um, go through Hungary to go to, to Ukraine. And, um, and on the, other hand, on the other hand, Poland has been uh, drumming up the, the possibility of a Russian invasion for, for years now. And, and t- to be honest, most Europeans took them a bit like, you know, OK, well, we, we understand the Poles have this kind of ancestral rivalry with Russia and, and you're a bit paranoid, so we'll kind of tolerate it. Um, but they're completely vindicated now. And it's it's quite striking to see about, you know, um, the whole conversation was upended by the event in Ukraine. Yeah.
1: And and, and I, this is really a really interesting point, I think, where we, we I, I would love to uh, get, Sebastian, get Sebastian's thoughts in because... I think one of the things you're seeing, particularly at this conference, is that the kind of united front of national conservatism that spans the whole European continent and goes from Poland's government all the way to the Hungarian government uh, by way of uh, countless other European countries that also have their national conservative parties. This sort of united front is not necessarily it is not as united as you might expect on the issue of Russia. So on, on one hand, yes, sure. The entire conference was an act of support uh, for the Ukrainian people, uh, and what what uh, Yoram's kind of interpretation of what's going on is, is he says uh, what's at threat in uh, what's what's being threatened by Russia is the Ukrainian nation, not some sort of abstract uh, ideology of liberalism. It's the very real and concrete fact of Ukrainian nationhood that is being uh, threatened by Russia's invasion. And I think right. he very he very uh, uh, elegantly and and kind of. He very uh, successfully hooked the entire conference around the issue of let's respond to what's going on in Ukraine and let's have everyone kind of show that we're united uh, a united front. But the, this united front is not as united as you may think because, as you as you just said, the poles are blaming the the poles are blaming the Hung, the, the, uh, the Hungarians. You know, the Hungarians have this sort of uh, very pro peace stand, right? They're essentially saying that it's in Hungary's interest that the two sides come to a negotiated settlement and that the war uh, ends uh, as soon as possible. Um, the polls instead are, are saying that this war absolutely needs to be lost by Putin. Uh, so again, there are um, considerable nuance, nuances, even though everyone at the conference was very adamant and very clear-cut that that Russia's aggression was um, was an act of um, was an act of you know lawlessness and call it what, what you will but but there there were some nuances some important nuances in mm. how each of these uh, countries and each of, each of these movements was approaching the issue uh, I wonder if that's what you got away uh, as well Sebastian
0: Oh I mean completely I mean um, <clears throat> one thing that was very I mean it was already obvious um, from that public statement that Hungary was trying to kind of tread what it saw as a path of moderation. Mm. Uh, in terms of sanctioning Putin uh, and that Poland was taking an incredibly belligerent tone. Um, so, that, and you could, um, you know, beh- you know, they were on stage, there was apparent unity. Behind the scenes, everyone I talked to, you could sense, particularly from everyone, anyone, you know, coming close to Hungary, this feeling that people were going way over the top, condemning Russian culture and Russian people, a sense that, you know, till five minutes ago, people were not, nearly so strong against Putin and that um and the, and, the, and, the, and 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 then on the other hand you you sense from the polls um a real a real sort of almost crusading desire to take down Putin. Mm. You know, and I, and I think and again I think history explains a lot of this. You know, Poland has been historically occupied and feel, feel fret, still feels threatened by Russia. Hungary is of course a long way away uh, and has a lot more sympathy.
2: Yeah. Absolutely, and it's also how, how can I put this? Um, it, it's also interesting, given the entire conversation we had around the, the role of the EU and how it was seen by the kind of Anglo American uh, Brexiteers and the rest of continental Europe, because I think I think the the, the Anglo Americans use the opportunity of Ukraine to kind of denounce the potential of a EU army as being kind of divisive and, 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 and unnecessary in those times of tensions when, you know, the the Atlantic family should reunite, whereas I think continental Europeans had a kind of a different approach. Um, obviously, the French saw this as an opportunity to defend strategic autonomy, blah, blah, blah. When they believed in it, you know, some of the French believed it was, it was nonsense. but um, And it was quite interesting, actually, to see, I think, where central Europeans... Like like the polls laid. I think there's a lot of positive things said, not just in that con- conference, but kind of general by by Poland, by Hungary, about the concept of, you know, kind of larger European autonomy in those moments. Because I think what was made quite apparent over the past few months is that America is a bit of a waning influence, a waning power in Europe. It won't be able forever to hold us together. And so I can think of the conversation of what role does the EU play in all this? Is this a moment to kind of link ourselves even tighter to Russia? And then there's the entire conversation about China. You know, um, what role should the EU play? Should the EU be completely aligned with China? Should, on the contrary, play a bit more of a balancing role between 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 uh, the US and China? And um, should it be auton- autonomous in the kind of Ukraine front? Should it be much more... Uh, in much closer coordination with 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 United States now obviously it's not strategic autonomy or nato they're obviously very much compatible these options but I, I think the kind of different of um accentuation between those different options was quite quite striking
0: yeah and i think i I and, I and i think this there's there's a theres there was a general sense that there was a need for resilience uh in terms of mm. supply chains yeah. in terms of defense industry yeah. um and uh, and I think there's definitely a contradiction between the sense that we needed to bind ourselves ever closer to America mm. and then the reality that this is a conflict in which America is not directly intervening. Yep. Yep. Um, and it's also a conflict in which many European powers' independent actions have had a great effect. Yep. You know, whether it's Britain dev- providing anti-tank weaponry, whether it's Europe hosting most of the refugees, you know, most of the heavy lifting here is being done by European countries. Yeah. Um, and you know in, and there's an in theory in extremists the Americans coming in but again the Americans coming in also heightens the risk of escalation and nuclear war and it and, and it and it's a situation where sometimes the smaller interventions smaller countries being able to get involved might allow us to deal with conflicts and crises in a way that doesn't pull us into international conflicts and entanglements
2: mm-hmm. mm. um Speaking of entanglements in Russia and Ukraine, I think this is might, might be the moment we start pivoting to the French election, unless any, we, we can cut this, but does anyone want to say anything on the NatCon movement? Maybe a few words on what kind of, maybe we should talk about workism actually. Let's talk about workism a little bit, because I think that's one thread that really united everyone, is workism is bad. Um, uh, Yeah, so let's talk about workerism. We'll, we'll go back to France a bit later, um, because, I, you know, we obviously, It's obviously more interesting to talk about the nuances, the differences between a movement, rather than kind of describing something as being kind of a, a monolith where everybody agrees, which obviously is never the case. It's more interesting to go through the nuances, the difference, movements within a current, and so on. Um, but there's one thing which I thought was quite strong is whether you you know it was the Anglo Americans or the Central Continentals or, or whatever. People 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 very much um did not want uh le wokismo or workism. I'm not sure how you saying in in Hungarian or or Poland. Um but it's interesting because we, we had uh, Rodrigo Ballester on, on the podcast a a few months ago. Um he was one of the speakers at the NATCON conference. We had him with um with Brice Couturier who is a, a famous French uh, journalist who talks a lot about the EU and international affairs. And it's 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 quite striking that it has the EU has been increasingly associated with, with woke ideas, mm. and um, whether it is the EU institutions like the EU Parliament or the Commission <clears throat> or, or, or the or the courts, for example, um, but it's quite striking to see you know Rodrigo Ballester made a speech about how e-institutions had become too totalitarian, or not totalitarian, but kind of went way too far in their force-feeding of woke ideas to European countries. And it's kind of an interesting situation because I think most people kind of instinctively are anti-woke. I think if you, know, if you had to do some kind of referendum or wokeism, yes or no, I think people would vote no. 70% no and 30% yes, something along those lines. But it was interesting to see how how Brice Couturier, the French journalist, responded because he's very much pro-EU, but he's also very anti-woke. And it's kind of an interesting situation where he had to kind of say wokeism is bad and somehow it's within the EU, but it has nothing to do with the EU as an organization. It just happened to be there and we need to fight it. And, 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 and Macron is a, strong, is a strong combatant against woke ideas. And so therefore, the EU will be, will be fine. Um, but I think I think that's really what unites the natcon movement is they find that angle in which they can hit on the EU, which is the EU is too socially liberal, it's too woke, and it's it's creating too much unnecessary tension where different countries should be allowed to have own kind of cultural political model rather than having kind of Anglo norms imposed from from the outside.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and I think and I think the um, the, um, the 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 uh, uh pointed i mean the point that uh, that he was referencing that Perillo was referencing i think primarily and the one we discussed in in our right. episode with him was um the uh guidelines on inclusive communication that that uh, had been yeah. published by uh Helena Dali who is the Maltese commissioner for equality um and essentially she cir- circulated these guidelines to the entire European commission where right. um where among other things uh she said you know uh, avoid using the word christmas avoid uh, referring to the, to the traditional family, uh, avoid referring to, um, uh, I mean, uh, 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 refer to whatever pronouns people want to go by and that kind of thing. So, um, and, and again, I think, uh, and, and, and this was really really summarized pretty well by Rodrigo's speech, which was titled, e- uh, European values are none of the EU's business, right? I mean, the EU has in its uh, founding treaties it, well, in, in the as in, in the treaties, the um, the the uh, commitment to defend European values, which are not very uh, concretely defined, they're kind of left uh, vague. Uh, but progressives in the European Union these days are interpreting European right. values to mean, um, you know, uh, 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 diversity in in in, uh, in in kind of diversity and in, in, in inclusion and, and all of this sort of the woke mantras. So um, so natcons never expected uh, that the EU would uh, would kind of get involved in, in social policy issues like you know uh, abortion and whatnot but now there, there's this, there's this really expansive interpretation that's being done of European values and now we, we, we've seen that the, the European Parliament has, has been issuing uh, rebukes uh, to Poland for instance rebukes of Poland's uh, pretty um, uh, 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 restricted abortion policy. So this is something that we never expected the EU would would um, would uh, get involved in, but now we're seeing it does.
2: It, it's so tactically um, inept as well, because I mean, the EU first of all isn't a it's not the most unpopular institution in, in in Europe. I think in many cases national governments tend to be more unpopular than the EU, but it's not equally a hugely enthusiastic organization for which people across Europe feel strongly about and and kind of associating with kind of fringe ideas which are not very popular when there's always kind of this accusation of being you know undemocratic and being kind of too far away from people's concerns uh, it just seems to me like uh, there's, there's a lack of tactical thinking uh, anyways
0: um i mean i think it's not really a question of tactics uh, i think that it's a question the that, it, that it's a question of ideology mm. that you know that whenever you have a global organization, an international organization, um, in the in the modern Western world, um, in the kind of intellectual climate in which we exist, it will be um, it will be run through the ideals that liberal people have yeah. for international relations mm-hmm. and foreign policy, and that is one of kind of international human rights, humanitarianism, mm-hmm. as they would see it. You know the the dignity and autonomy of individuals uphold by a kind of liberal rules bound international order. And, you know, you've seen things like the head of MI6 in in Britain um, saying um, at the outbreak of the conflict in Ukraine, that what divided us from Putin was LGBTQ plus rights. Uh And now it's regardless of whether you're a staunch social conservative or staunch social liberal on issues like that. Um, I think we should be able to agree that that's not what this conflict is about, that these are not countries that are wildly different in their attitudes towards gay people in terms of their laws and their, um, their social attitudes. There's some difference, but it's not it's not huge. Um, and the yeah. fact that this is the way that Westerners want to see this conflict yeah. tells you a lot about what international relations are about, which is, is often, they're often not actually about interrelations between different cultures, and embodying an international order, although that what it's supposed to be about, it's actually often curiously internal. It's about an elite declaring its own values yeah. and living them out.
2: It's also a sociology, you know, it's Religious. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a kind of demographic profile to sociology. Um, it's kind of but it, it's but what, what I think it might be a tactical issue is if the EU isn't just, you know, kind of civil servants and, and a young graduates coming from top elite universities where those ideas are very strong. It's also a lot of politicians. Uh, Some of them are kind of pre-retired. Some countries consider the EU as kind of a pre-retirement for kind of washed up politicians. But it's not the case in all all of those countries. You know, look at Germany. Look at, you know, some countries take the EU quite seriously and send some kind of prominent first rate politicians. Um, And that's why I think it's a bit of a I think, you know, some kind of tactical error is that those political leaders should sense that it's a it's a bit short sighted and a bit dangerous for 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 the EU to be associated so strongly with those ideas. It might be unfair. It might be kind of uh, good posturing by Orbán and the rest of it. But it's I don't know. It's just something to keep in mind of. Um, yeah, well, it'll be interesting to see the, the results of the Hungarian election actually on this because that might change the conversation on 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 the EU quite a lot actually in the months to come. Anyway, so. Um, let's let's do the the uh, long announced pivot to to the French election. Um, it's kind of crazy. I didn't see time fly. It's in ten days basically, um, which is ludicrous. Yeah. I I feel like I don't, um, it, it, it's a bit it's a bit of an early election compared to other um, presidential elections. Um, but first of all, the, the last time we did an, a, a, a podcast on the French election was I think before the Ukraine war. So, wow, a lot of things have changed since. There's been a very kind of natural rally around the flag phenomenon with Macron kind of reaching the the, the low 30s in some polls, which is kind of credible given he had been basically stagnant around 25% for the past two or three years. Um, And all of a sudden he gets gets a huge boost. Um, What that has been, though, is also candidates like Zemmour and Le Pen who have been associated with, with with Russia and Putin? I mean, Zimou has had some crazy quotes about Putin in the past. You know, France needs a a French Putin. Uh, Vladimir Putin is a great leader. Yada yada yada. And I'm sure you could do it with most politicians, but Zimou says it said it with such bravado that he's being punished especially hard um, nowadays, and he's now kind of around 10 percent rest of it. Um, but what's quite incredible is um, Zimou had spent the first four months of the campaign in kind of in, 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 in um, uh, September, October, November, December, he was kind of pushing his ideas of immigration, security, identity, and all of a sudden, they seem like swept away in a few days by the entire story of, of Ukraine. And um, and yeah, as it stands, I have a bit of a, a poll aggregator here. Uh, Macron is at 28%, according to kind of average of different polls. Le Pen is at 19%. Mélenchon is at 14%. That's a big story here. Zemmour is at 11%. Is, is at is, is at 11%. Uh, Pécresse being the centre-right candidate. And then you get the Greens at 6%. The Communists at 4%. That's also quite funny. The Communists are head of the, of the Socialist Party, which is at 2%, which is I don't know, kind of ludicrous. I, I, I think the last time the Communist Party was ahead of the Socialist Party was probably in the 1970s, maybe? Mm. Um Yeah, so it's a big development. Yeah. But anyways, Sebastian, as an outsider who, um, I guess, probably has been chiming a little bit on the French election over the past few months, I don't know, what what do you make of the election? And I think how it contrasted with the more recent British elections, which were, I guess, um, I was going to say more traditional, but no, they were completely upended by Brexit.
0: Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I think, I mean, first of all, um, British people are fantastically unaware of French politics, uh-huh. which occasionally comes to them as a series of dramatic, dramatic images, um, shorn from their context. Uh-huh. And I think possibly that impression is heightened by the structure of French politics, mm. which has, um, you know, every sort of eight years or so this incredibly high stakes, very dramatic fight between figures that all seem extraordinary by British standards. I mean, even in the era of Trump and Boris you know, French politicians will say things that you could never say in a million years in the mm. British context, and the person saying it will be someone who is considered to be in the center of French politics. Yeah. I, I think that the degree to which the French are just politically different than the English, mm. and even a lot of countries in Europe, can't be can't be can't be overstated. And I also think that it the the fact that you have all of the politics in between these very kind of dramatic elections that British people don't see, so that we're always surprised oh. by it. We're always surprised by who are the candidates, oh. what's happening, and I think no one in France is surprised in the same to the same degree.
2: Well, I, I want to blow um, our own trumpet, so to speak, here a little bit, because I think the last time we did an episode, um, which was probably a month ago, Mélenchon was at ten percent. He was kind of. Getting he was, he was clearly, clearly ahead of the kind of scattered left-wing field. And I remember saying, be careful, be careful. There's going to be a kind of tactical voting phenomenon, which is going to snowball, where left-wing voters are going to say, OK, well, I've got no chance to win if I vote for the Socialists. I have no chance to win if I vote for the Greens. Actually, that Mélenchon guy might have just have a chance to make it to the runoff, which is exactly what happened to Mélenchon in 2017 where he kind of siphoned all the socialist votes from Benoît Hamon, who dropped from 20% to 6% in a matter of weeks. Um, and so, as of now, he's five points behind Le Pen. But since, since the participation rates are uh, reported to be likely going to be very low um, in a few weeks' time, in a few days' time, actually, by now, um, the entire kind of model is completely screwed up. The reporters really do not know... Um, how reliable their models are. They were quite accurate in 2017, and they predicted Macron would do well. But my question is, will they be able to predict um, if you know participation rates are only kind of 65%, 70%, um, which would be very low for a presidential election? That could kind of throw off a few things. So I don't know, something to, to follow. And um, and yeah, Mélenchon is a good campaigner. He's one of the kind of all-school, all-school, all-school guys who knows how to speak. He speaks tremendously well. I think it's quite striking, actually, back in 2017, um, even more conservative-leaning voters for second, like, actually, hmm, could I vote for this guy? Because he spoke well. He spoke, you know, in, in, in proper French, with a lot kind of um, historical and literary references in his speeches. And I think, I think the French like to be flattered like by that, that way. Um, and so he did very well. He did 20% for kind of far-left. That's huge. Um yeah, I don't know. It's uh, it's, it's it's essentially French Corbyn to some extent, um, yeah. but uh, outside of a socialist party, I guess. Hmm.
1: Yeah, and and we, we should perhaps uh, touch a word, Francois, on the Zemmour phenomenon. I mean, Zemmour yeah. had a very, um, let's call it stormy sort of uh, entry into the political uh, contest. He when he declared mm-hmm. uh, his candidacy with a very kind of. Um, uh, almost a, a, a very sort of um, uh, with this with famous uh, snippet or, or video that he published where um, uh, essentially he was uh, um, imitating or, or emulating uh, Charles mm, the dress yeah. the 18th of June, 1940. Um, mm-hmm. that, that created, you know, that, that sort of, Zemmour entered in, in a sort of big splash, right? Yep. Created a, 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 a whole lot of buzz around him. Mm-hmm. Um, he started gaining a lot of momentum, but then his campaign kind of stalled in the last few weeks. And uh, the one thing we should perhaps uh, mention is that uh, just a couple of days ago on Sunday, uh, this past week, uh, Zemmour held a meeting, uh, a a huge rally at the Trocadero, where he was able to, I think, gather uh, 100,000 people, which is huge. I mean, really massive, even for the Trocadero. Um, So I I know that a lot of people, obviously, uh, in in his own camp, uh, are are disputing uh, the media narratives about Zemmour losing steam. Uh, they are they are um, they they, um, they they claim that that Zemmour is being underrated uh, or under uh, underestimated by the polls, and that uh, come election day, you know, a great many more people will actually turn out for for Zemmour. I mean, yeah. when you're when you're seeing he he's uh, he's at fourteen percent in the poll you mentioned, another other poll I think is even lower. But uh, his, uh, well, there, there's something that the polls just don't measure, which is the enthusiasm. So it doesn't yeah. just come down to how many people you can get to vote for you. It comes down but to how much enthusiasm.
2: Y- you have to be careful because enthusiasm isn't a replacement for a vote in the ballots. That's right. Because um, some campaigns were super... Look, look at the sorry, 2020 election in the US. The Biden campaign was super low energy. He hardly did any rallies. He he was he was mo- like I, I, remember one of our friends working in the press in the U.S. Um, counted how many official campaign hours he was Biden was doing per weeks per week, and it was like thirty five hours a week. It's a French French work week. Um, now I I'm fine with French work week, but when you're trying to become president of the United States, um, I would expect it to be probably one of the most tiring moments. In your life, and he was doing thirty-five hours. Trump was was rallying like crazy. He had huge crowds, like nothing, like anything Biden could do. It was just the contrast was huge. And in the end, Biden won decisively, because I think campaign energy isn't um, it's, it's 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 a it's a positive indicator. You'd rather have that than no energy whatsoever. That's for sure. Mm. But it's it's not a complete proxy,
0: and. Um, sure. I mean, Trump, of yeah. course, undermined his own campaign energy yeah. because he told his voters, there's no point voting, it's rigged. Yeah, ripped. yeah. You're like, just... the worst possible thing you could say it's to voters. One in. of the
2: craziest own goals in, 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 in politics. I completely agree. Um, but, I don't know, so the energy is positive, And what Zumwale is saying is, if, if participation rates are going to be low, then, you know, a high energy campaign is going to be highly mobilized and probably could, could create an upset. Uh, sure, why not? Um, Sarkozy thought he would win back for his party when he was running in 2016 to become the leader of a party and in, in the in the presidential candidate for the 2017 election. Um, his book was a huge bestseller. He he got massive crowns. Pe- people were crying when they saw him. I mean, it was completely crazy. And it, and he lost the primary. He didn't even make it to the presidential election. So I think you have to be careful with the energy argument. Yeah. To
0: uh, do. No, I was just going to say. I mean, I, I think there's a there's definitely a sense that this is. I, mean, I think again of Trump. I think campaign energy is great. It just has to combine mm. with several other factors yeah. to be a fa- to be a factor. Yeah. Um. And I think if you have an overall atmospheric, events-based election, mm. having individual charisma and energy doesn't necessarily carry it. You also have to have a narrative. Yeah. Trump had both mm. when he won, and he had only one when he lost. Mm-mm. And and I think with this current French election, it's clear that the event in question, like so, it was the pandemic that. Killed Trump off, mm-hmm. and I think in this French election, his the the Sarko, you know, um, the um the president's um uh, rivals are being killed off yeah. by Ukraine. Yeah, it's very, it's looking like it's a khaki election. Yeah. you know, German British politics, um, you know, it's like, like relate to the election at the turn of the century where the Conservative Party handily defeated the Liberals because they were divided and there was a war. On. Mm. But the thing about khaki elections is they create very unstable mm. uh, governments mm-hmm. because you ride this wave of unnatural support mm. that has nothing to do with your domestic yep. politics. You win, but then your mandate evaporates, and you're you're actually you're actually worse off mm. because you don't you don't have the heart you don't you know you don't you don't have to go you don't have to go through what you would have had to do if you're fighting a hard fought campaign. Mm. Um, on the issues, yeah. you, you you don't have the support for the issues you need, yeah. uh, and the real risk is I think this this could this could see um, you know an incumbent hang on, mm. but the risk is that um, he's he's one he he has a uniquely weak president in charge of France for the next yeah. eight years.
2: Yeah, and I, I I think it's a good transition to the kind of post election if we have to kind of look at that because it looks. Very likely Macron will be re-elected. You never know, but it looks very likely he's going to get re-elected. And I think you're pointing at something that is quite, quite, quite true, quite accurate, actually, right now in the worries, especially in the, in the Macron camp, because his, his campaign is very low energy. He only started campaigning like a week ago, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. Um, like Of course, he had, he had COVID, he had uh, Ukraine, so he, it was tough for him. But he could have... Lived. In January, decided to start campaign. Start a campaign in January, but he decided not to for different um, tactical reasons, I guess. But there's, I agree with you because I think Macron was elected in 2017 um, for different reasons. He got a bit lucky. Let's face it, you know, uh, he got a bit lucky that uh, the the Socialists decided to run one of the kind of more fringe candidates for hand rather than more more the centrist. He got a bit lucky than François Fillon had all those scandals on his back and he wasn't, you know, facing maybe a Sarkozy. who would have been, I think, more pugnacious and, and harder to wear down all of those kind of scandals. Or Alain Juppé, who was more of a centrist. Um, so he, he got kind of put a, a good alignment of stars to win in 2017. And especially in a campaign where they, we didn't really talk much about uh, about the issues, you know. Um, we talked about Fillon scandals, we talked about all of those things, but we didn't talk much about the issues back in 2017 especially on the kind of security identity questions, which was a bit surprising, to be honest, because France, a few months before that, was being rocked by a series of terrorist attacks. And in the end, we barely actually talked about it in the election. It's been kind of a strange election. And so all those issues came back during Macron's presidency. But he had kind of, first of all, he didn't have much of a strong backbone on those issues, which was a a bit of a concern. And secondly, he had no strong mandate. So he had so many clashes within his own majority where people didn't feel they were elected to kind of toughen up on those issues. Um, and, and then also kind on of, kind of more kind of economic and social questions, there's a feeling there wasn't much of a debate either. And it's, it's hard to think that the gilets jaunes weren't partly a product of that. It's obviously a product of many things but a product of a campaign where a lot of the issues didn't feel like they were talked about. You know, the cathartic moment of the presidential election didn't happen in 2017. And if it doesn't happen in 2022, you could feel like something along those lines could happen in the next five years where people feel like they didn't get this moment of democratic respiration breathing where they could kind of air out ideas and and, and get angry about them, talk about them, but at least kind of handle those issues. Mm. Yeah. Sebastian?
0: Oh yes sir. Um, you know you don't have no, to I, mean, I thought you wanted to say something like that. No 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 I mean um, I think there's I think that's undoubtedly the case mm. that there's actually re- I mean this is part of the problem with having these quite spaced out elections mm. in the French system they provide a strong president if you have a strong president yep. but if you have a weak president yep. that's a long, fired, that? yeah. a long period of political drift
2: it used to be 7 years
0: yeah, sorry, I got mixed up on that. Yeah, such as the such as the, the keenness, of British interest in French politics. And again, it to,
2: it's five years now. It used to be seven years. It's been it's been five years since um, the two thousand two election. Um, um, yeah, there is another thing which is interesting, which is the legislative election is riding on the back of the French presidential election. Um, and so, usually, what happens is whoever wins the presidential election, since the French at heart are essentially uh, royalists, they will give a majority to whoever's elected. So you know, back in 2017, I remember joking saying, "There's no way Macron's going to get a majority if he wins. Uh, the guys are nobody. He's going to, he's going to get nobodies in, in parliament. That's not going to work." And it worked. It completely worked. Um, you could have put a goat with a Macron sign on top of his head, and he would have been elected. It's just it was. In, he he got one of the largest majorities in the history of the Fifth Republic. Um, it really tells you. I mean, some of them end up being very good, at, very good MPs since. But it really shows how kind of monarchists the french are in their kind of relationship Mm. to the institutions now we elected a king we need to make sure he at least has a majority to do what he wanted to do in the first place yeah um
1: and and the interesting thing is that the the uh uh, legislative uh landscape the spectrum of parties in in parliament Mm. is going to be further splintered with the Mm. entry of zemuro's party i mean Mm. whatever happens in the first and second rounds of the presidential election the chances are Uh, that Zemmour is going to um, go on and and run in the legislative elections, uh, which means that he will have to set up uh, a parliamentary group, and he will have to recruit people to run for office in every single one of these uh, départements, right, of these uh, Mm. constituencies. And what you saw in 2017 with Macron was that um, part of that, part of the campaign, part of the drive to recruit candidates for Macron's uh, campaign in 2017 was kind of amateur it was would be I think a charitable way to put it. I mean he ended up drafting people who had no experience whatsoever of politics, which is not an issue in itself, but they also had no knowledge of politics whatsoever. He ended up drafting uh, a lot of people who weren't uh, weren't necessarily cogent in their sort of in the way that they, that they expressed their views. so that made for a lot of great meme content. <laughs> um, and and we'll, we'll see what happens with Zemmour. I mean, I I, I, tend to, I mean, I, I think I think he's obviously going to draft a lot of people who were previously involved with either Le Rassemblement National, Marine Le Pen's party, or oh. uh, Les Républicains, the center-right party. But uh, maybe there, there's going to be a substantial share of um, um, of uh, political neophytes. Um, mm.
2: um, and I, I want to add something about this because. The, the electoral race for the legislative election is going to be quite tough it's been quite splintered um but we haven't talked about le pen at all le pen as it stands yeah. is by far the likeliest to make make it to the runoff against macron um and i think that's quite quite a, sh- a major feat she has managed to keep together her electoral base which has become much more working class than in the past um i was actually quite struck I was listening to a, to a TV show with Valérie Pécresse. And they got different kind of random people from all across France to ask Pécresse some questions. And they, they had, to, well, they didn't have to, but they were encouraged to say who had, who had they voted for back in 2017. And so one of them was a Le Pen voter. And her question, she's a Le Pen voter and she asked Pécresse about discriminations in the workplace. And I was like, wow, this is a lecture that has really changed. She was a kind of young woman. Um, I think she actually had some kids. I think the far left or something like that. And I was thinking, in a kind of alternative reality, if she wasn't, if she wasn't called Le Pen, if she wasn't the leader of Rassemblement National, um, I think her platform would, to some extent, you know, you have to imagine a little bit, but kind of work on a kind of, a kind of a left wing spectrum. Actually, um, she seems very comfortable denouncing Zemmour as being racist, as being too far to the right. She seems a lot more comfortable nowadays in the kind of slightly patriotic, um, left-wing nationalist, in some ways, um, and it's quite striking to see actually that she has completely shifted her, her her identity, and I think that's who she is profoundly because she got she got rid or she lost all, all the kind of more right-wing anti-immigration and Christian identity people to to over the past few weeks, and now she has um, as a in contrast, she seems to have moderated compared to Zemmour, um, and she seems a lot more comfortable with what she, she's doing. But this is your is She only has yes men right now in the party, which is a bit of an issue. And the fact she lost so many of his people, despite her being ahead of Zemmour in polls, she's losing people to Zemmour despite her having a better chance at making the runoff, it really tells me that the, the, the atmosphere within the party must be quite toxic. That it's a mainly issue of human resources and kind of her being trying to um, control the party to firmly not leaving any kind of internal breathing, um, because it's not normal. You start bleeding so many people to Zimor, despite the fact Zimor is eight to six points behind you,
0: including apparently her, including apparently Marion.
2: Yeah, she lost Marion. She lost Mar- She was actually supposed to speak at the um, NatCon conference. Um, uh, no, so
0: I saw,
2: uh, but she didn't, she didn't go to. Yeah, she, she lost her niece. Uh, wow, I don't know. It and, just
1: it, and and not to be underestimated. She also lost uh, someone whom I think would be fair to say is the uh, most eloquent of the. Although no, he was from the center right. Sorry, uh, Guillaume Pelletier also spoke. At yeah. the, uh, he also spoke at the um, the Trocadero rally, and he was one of the more eloquent people at the, of the center right. Yeah.
2: Well, Pelletier is an interesting case because he started his, his career as a Front National, you Front National. Um, and then he went to, uh, Philippe de Villiers kind of center, uh, right-wing nationalist party. Then he went to Les Républicains. And so now he's kind of moving back to Zemmour. That's, he's had a kind of a that's very interesting career. You, you, yeah. you
1: rarely have that sort of pendulum swing from the far yeah. right to the center and back to the far right.
2: And, and, and back to the far right. Yeah. So it's an interesting um, case. I don't know. It's going to be, it's going to be tight. We'll obviously, we'll probably do an episode a week before the election to kind of, I know, gaming out, um, interview some people, do a profile on Macron. So we're going to have to do a special episode on that and probably going to do at least another one uh, after, the, after the, the runoff, maybe. I don't know we have to work it out, but we're definitely going to be covering a lot of the election in the past few weeks. So mm. stay tuned for that. Um, wow, 53 minutes. Uh, it's a good episode. Thank you so much, Sebastian.
0: Thank you so much.
2: Yeah, it was wonderful bouncing ideas off the NatCon event. Please, if you're interested in the NatCon thing, NatCon event, please do give a read to his um, two and probably three articles by the time.
0: Free, free uh, if soon enough.
2: By the time we publish this tomorrow on Wednesday. Um, it's a very interesting kind of nuanced take of a different tribes within the NatCon movement, what drives them, the tensions, um, what pushes them together and, um, yeah so I do, do recommend and he's also a very interesting person to read on, on kind of Anglo politics in general but kind of anything he writes on the critic is definitely worth um, reading um, Jorge I, I want to thank you for coming back but I think you're basically contractually obliged to be here every week um, so thank you I guess and uh, to our listeners I say thank you so much and uh, see you all next week